Growing up, Grant Hill never wanted to stand out. That's pretty hard to do when in grade school he was taller than everybody else. Not to mention, his father Calvin went to Yale and played in the NFL. His mother Janet went to Wellesley College where she was roommates with Hillary Clinton. Grant was an only child raised with some high expectations and he's managed to live up to them. Coming out of high school, he was a heavily recruited athlete, choosing to play basketball for Duke University and the famed Coach K. They won two NCAA titles, and Grant was headed to the NBA. He was Rookie of the Year. He became an All-Star and again stood out as one of the NBA's best. Then Grant suffered the first of several debilitating ankle injuries that nearly destroyed his career and an infection he contracted threatened to end his life. But instead of giving up, he set his sights on making a comeback. Now at 39 years old, he lives his life with grace and class, both on and off the court. That's why Grant Hill is a master. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Grant Hill. I was nine years old with a sock, putting a wire hanger above the door in my bedroom and just pretending that I'm playing in Madison Square Garden or playing in the fabulous form or the Boston Garden, pretending I'm going against some of the guys that I looked up to back in the early, late 80s. And you do that because you love it. It's amazing. I mean, I still have that same love like I had when I was eight years old, and I'm still going out there competing. You know, I can't run as long as I could <laughs> when I was eight years old, but I certainly have that same relationship with the game, that same passion, that same uh, respect, you know, for the game and for what it can do for you. Both of my parents helped to shape me and teach me and instill, you know, the right values. And my mom was tough. As a kid, if I didn't get good grades, I couldn't play. <laughs> but in the same breath, she was extremely fair. She helped to nurture, you know, my talents. She helped to give me a nudge and encourage me to, at times, step out of my comfort zone. My dad was a professional athlete, but, you know, he was and still is a great dad. And one of the things that he always quoted, and he learned from his father, my grandfather, he would always say that in parenting, there's 12 inches between a pat on the back and a pat on the butt. But as a parent, you, you have to do both. And the key is constant contact. And so there was contact. He was engaged, he was involved. He would drive me to basketball games, got to know my friends and helped me with homework and, and did all these different things that I might not have understood or appreciated then, but certainly looking back now and, and, and being a parent, I find myself doing the exact same thing that they did. I mean, it's kind of depressing in some respects because you're like, wow, I'm, I'm at that age where I'm, you know, I'm doing the exact same thing my parents did. But in the same breath, it's comforting and, and certainly makes you just appreciate what you have and what you've had. I think kids, and maybe for the most part, people in general, I think we, we, we crave acceptance. I think we want to fit in. And quite honestly, most of my friends didn't have fathers who were professional athletes. A lot of my friends didn't even have relationships with their fathers. And so now you compound the fact that, you know, my father's there and he's a great athlete. 
I, like a lot of people, wanted to fit in. I was kind of shy then, so I didn't like unwanted attention and so forth. And, you know, I just wanted to be liked and to be known for me and not for any sort of preconceived ideas that one might have because of who my father was. When I was in eighth grade, a bunch of my friends were older than me, and they were in ninth grade, and they played freshman basketball at the high school that I ultimately went to. And so I used to come to their games, and I used to be big fans, and you know, to feel like you're a part of the team and a part of their success, I would like sit behind the bench and sometimes even give them water when they came out of the game. I was close with these guys and just really liked them, and they were a good team. And so the following year, when I was a freshman and before the season started, we were all kind of working out and getting ready for tryouts. And the head varsity basketball coach one day pulled me into his office and he said, you know, I want you to try out for the varsity team. I'm a late birthday, so I'm 13 at the time, I'm not even 14 yet. And the idea of 13, playing with 17-year-olds, and just, it, it was overwhelming at that time. And I told him I didn't, I didn't want to. And he told me to just go home and, you know, think about it, you know, talk about it with your parents. So, you know, I went home and, and you know, told my parents. And, you know, both of them said, look, you're, you're going to play varsity. And so I went ahead and tried out for the team and made the team. And, but it, it really hit me the following year when everything as a sophomore I really blossomed and think the game became easy and I realized it might have been the last person to realize just how good and how talented I was. And I don't want to use the word destiny, but it's not for me to fit in. I'm supposed to stick out, and that's okay. You know, it's okay to do that. And that was something that I fought for a very long time. But I think that was that first point where it kind of hit me, where I have a gift, I have a talent, and it's not for me to necessarily be like everybody else on the court. It's okay to, to, to stand out. You know, and that kind of went against my personality a little bit. You know, the recruiting process is you have well-known basketball coaches who are basically begging you to come to their school and they're telling you how great you are. To be a fan of college basketball and follow Duke and, and North Carolina and all these, the whole college basketball scene. Then all of a sudden, you know, it seems like in the blink of an eye, these guys are all recruiting you. The interesting thing is, growing up, I was a Carolina fan. The first college basketball game that I ever watched and really just, it captured me and, and it, it sucked me in was when Georgetown lost to North Carolina and Michael Jordan hit the shot and that really propelled him in his career as a college freshman. And so obviously, Duke was the rival of Carolina. So I guess I always thought I'd go to Carolina, but Coach K, coach at Duke University, through the process, I got to know him, and I got to believe him and believe in him. He never promised me anything. I don't think he's ever promised anyone anything. He said, I think you can be a great player, but you're going to have to come in and work for it. I, I like that. He was going to challenge you. You know, I knew that right away. But he was going to make you better, a better player uh, and a better person. And I got that sense you know, as a 16-year-old in high school. Like, man, I know I haven't been a fan of Duke and the benefit, but like, I believe in this person. I want to be a part of what he's doing. And that's why, you know, that's why I chose to play for him. I'm thankful that 
I was wise beyond my years back when I was 16 years old and made that decision. That first year at Duke, you come into a situation and you're a freshman and, you know, I, I respected not only authority, but I respected those that were ahead of me, guys that were older than me. And so going back to as a freshman at high school and sort of coming to realize that uh, it's okay to stick out, that was still part of that process. And so coach kept pushing me and kept challenging me and, you know, dare to be great and, you know, show what you have. And there was a growth and a maturation process that first year. Compare the, the end of the season with the beginning of the season. I think mentally I became more comfortable with doing what I do and showcasing my talents. It was surreal, that whole first season and winning the championship and and then you come home and the next week you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And, you know, I'm still a teenager. I'm not sure I did a good job of keeping that in check. I think any teenager would be a little hard to digest all of that. But growing up with a dad who's a professional football player, my perspective was I'd been around it. I've seen it. I've heard the stories. I'd brag about Sports Illustrated to my dad. And he'd say, like, I've been on it three times. It's like, okay, you know. <laughs> and so... I think my perspective, thankfully, when you become a teenager and there's a lot of temptations and distractions and things that can kind of get you off course, I remember those things. I saw that firsthand from him and from my dad's colleagues. That was extremely helpful and still helpful now. You know, the thing about that season, I think we were number one all season in the combination of cable television and the exposure that team got. It was absolutely crazy especially for a college team. The team was like a bunch of rock stars, I and mean, I hate to say that, but there was this tremendous excitement for Duke basketball. We were in a great game against Kentucky, and you know we thought we had the game kind of under control, and then they make a, an unbelievable comeback and start to get momentum. And now the game is just going back and forth, and we're making a great play, and they come down and make a great play, and it's like a ping pong match. Sean Woods hits a shot, who's the point guard for Kentucky, with like two seconds left. You know, you think at that moment, it's over, you know, and you're going to the huddle and you're just like, wow, like we're going to lose on that play. Like everything that we have done this season, we're number one the entire season. We're trying to be the first team to repeat as back-to-back -back champions in, you know, 20 years or what have you. And, and we're going to lose on that shot, on that play. And so when we get to that huddle, Coach K just was actually kind of brilliant what he did. And to have the presence of mind under those kind of conditions, to be able to sort of understand there's time left and understand that we still have a, a chance to win. And, and he asked me, Grant, can you make a pass all the way down the court? And I said, yeah, I can do it. But it's interesting, what people don't know was that every day before practice that year, and every day for four years in college, you work on the fundamentals, you work on certain things. And one of the things that we work on is a warm-up. We work on this drill where we, we throw a baseball pass every day. And you partner up with somebody and they go down the court and you, you, throw, you go out of bounds. And it's almost like a quarterback to a wide receiver and you throw the ball and you got to catch it in stride and try to lay it in. And so coach, knowing that and knowing that I could deliver that pass, I think believed in me and asked me if I could do it. And then he asked Christian, if Grant makes the pass, are you going to make the shot? And he said, look, I'll make the shot if Grant makes the pass. We walked out of that huddle, and I've talked to guys immediately after it happened, and I've talked to them 20 years later. We all believe 
that we were going to win. I just felt that I was going to do my part and uh, Christian would do his and we'd win. And we did. What makes sports so unique is that you always think you have a chance. That's why there's upsets. If you go sort of by conventional wisdom or by what, you know, the experts say, you'd think, okay, this team is better, this team is outmatched, this team has better players, we're going to lose. But sports will challenge you. It'll challenge you in your belief system and, and, and that you can overcome, that you can overcome a fourth quarter lead. You can be down 10. We still can win this game. And so it just forces you to challenge yourself, challenge physically, mentally, to push through. And then you realize, wow, I have more, we have more than I ever had expected or anticipated. I was fortunate in 1994 to be drafted to Detroit with the third pick in the draft. I'm about to be a professional. I'm about to be on the highest stage going against some of the greatest players in the world, a lot of whom I've grown up watching and grown up emulating and, and being a fan of. And, and now I'm, I'm soon to be on a court with and against these guys. You know, it, it was an exciting time. And, and to finally go to the draft and to hear your name called and to put your hat on and walk across that stage, it's like, okay, I've made it. But you also know it's just begun. There's a lot of hard work ahead and you can't rest on any of the things that you had done in the past. You know, you gotta come out and prove yourself. The game is, is sacred. It's bigger than just putting the ball in the basket. And, and so I think you, you just have to respect it. And, and you know, to me, sportsmanship is not just on the court. It pretty much embodies everything that, that, that you are in terms of the game. It's about coming to practice on time. It's about getting your rest. It's about doing what you need to do in the weight room and recovering and all aspects. It's, it's you know, being on time for the bus. You know, I think it's all these different things that, that add up combined with how you conduct yourself on the court and how you, you know, how you compete, how you deal with adversity, how you talk to the media even when you lose a game or when you play horrible. It's a combination of a number of things and to me it's just about, it's about respect. It's about respecting the game and respecting everything that the game is all about. I was on the, the 96 Olympic team. I was the youngest guy on the team. I, I had just finished my second year in the NBA and there were members of the original Dream Team. Charles Barkley, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson. And so these were guys that, you know, I was watching in high school and now I'm on their team, along with Shaq and Penny Hardaway and, a, and, a, and another, you know, host of characters. But to play on that stage, to represent your country and to be the best in the world and be on that team, it was one of the, the highlights, you know, for sure of my career. And I learned a lot, you know, I, I took it as an opportunity to, to learn from those veterans. And I went against Scottie Pippen every day in practice for a month. You can't help but get better. And it was just a huge confidence booster. I mean, I came back that next season and, and had, you know, at least up until that point, had probably my best, my best season. And it's funny, I remember as a little kid when I, when I first started playing basketball and you know, I was usually taller than everybody. I was taller than everybody. And I was on a team, maybe nine years old, and I was pretty good. And I remember we had a game, and we might have won 30 to something, 30 to 25. And I scored all the points. And I was proud, and, you know, I did it all myself. And 
I scored all the points, man, I'm good, you know, and sort of like anyone who would be if they were in that situation. And I remember my dad telling me, look, the great players make their teammates better. The great players create an environment where the guys that are on the team with them enjoy playing with them. And for some reason, that, that left an impression on me. And so you, you realize that you, you got to be selfless. It can't be all about you. And so there's that sort of give and, and take that coexists between you and your teammates. As a player, I mean, it's like this balance between team and personal where as great as you are, you need the cooperation of the four other guys on the court with you. And so I've tried to sort of carry that spirit with me throughout my entire career. And, you know, it's about working with others. It's about creating an environment where we all look forward to coming to work every day. We all have that same common goal. And you don't always necessarily win. You don't always win that ultimate goal or even win the game that's in front of you. But if you know that, hey, these guys are in the trenches with me, these guys together win, lose, or draw, we're in this, we're vested in this whole thing. That's an unbelievable feel, and that's really a life lesson. In his first six seasons in the NBA, Grant led the Detroit Pistons to the playoffs three times. And he'd fallen in love and married the beautiful Grammy-nominated R&B singer, Tamia. Everything was falling into place. But near the end of the basketball season, he started to have problems with his ankle. I was in the NBA for six years and things were going well. I was an all-star. I was uh, at the top of my game. And then my last year in Detroit, in the spring of 2000, I started to have problems with my ankle. You don't think much of it. You just periodically things come up. You just kind of grind it out. You play through it. It's kind of a badge of honor. But I remember in game two of the first round of the playoffs, I felt something pop. I knew, I knew that something wasn't right. And so we flew back to Detroit, we got in late. Uh, I remember I went to some imaging center with our trainer. It was like three, four o'clock in the morning. And I remember, I remember the trainer, you know, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm, you know, I'm limping, but I'm walking. And he sees the x-ray and he puts it up in the light. And I mean, he, he yelled something out, like he was in disbelief, like, oh my God, you know, like, I, you know, like, I don't realize it's that bad. And he said, don't move. And I'm thinking, look, uh, this thing hurts. I don't plan on moving. Up until that point, I knew something was wrong, but I felt like everyone was looking at me like, just gut it out. You'll be fine. I was out May, June of 2000. July, uh, started walking in August, and then eventually came back the next season on a new team in Orlando. And so, obviously, when you sign a big contract and go to a new team, everybody's excited, including myself. So I came back probably a little too soon. Instead of giving it seven, six to seven months to recover, I probably came back in three to four months. I came out, played a few games, and uh, the doctors said that the bones had done all the healing that they were going to do, but they didn't heal together. And so we had another surgery. I was out for about seven months, came back. I was instructed that I could play and you're, all, you're okay. So go out, stress it, get yourself ready for the upcoming season. And then by mid-November of 2001, it started to, to flare up. It started to give me problems again. So we had to go back in again and um, have surgery in December of 2001. 
Same routine, sat out, crutches, rehabbed. I remember going and having my last visit with the doctor. Everything is good. I don't need to see you anymore. You'll be good to go. And so now that was after my third surgery. So once again, start preparing for the season. And I was pretty good at preparing for the season at this point, <laughs> coming off an injury. And you go through training camp, no problems. You start the season in November, no problems. And then once again, we made it a little farther this time. We got to mid-December and the ankle's giving me problems. The doctor who did the surgery is saying it's okay. And, and, and I finally like, you know what? This just doesn't make sense. You know, something's not right. So eventually I had surgery in March of 2003, my fourth surgery. And I had it done at Duke University. I realized a lot of times when something's not right in your gut and something doesn't sit well, then you need to figure out why that's the case. And there were plenty of times through this experience, going back to the beginning, that it just didn't seem right, but hey, they're the expert, so I'll just go on their opinion. And certainly now, looking back at it, I maybe could have insisted on better doctors or better care or whatever the case may be. And so when you go through something like that, that's when it's about self-discovery. And that's when you realize and you learn that it, intuition is, is real and you got to follow it. Not that I'm distrustful of people, but I'm more, I trust myself more. and I trust my gut and my instincts. I had surgery in March of 2003. Five days after the surgery, my temperature shot up, called the doctor, you know, I took some fever medication. And then like two days later, this is not, now it's like a week. And usually the pain has gone away. Usually it doesn't hurt, but it still hurts. I'm still elevating the leg. And I was getting really cold and I was freezing. And, you know, I'm yelling for my wife. So she comes in and I'm shaking and, you know, we just had a baby. Our, our daughter was maybe a year, year and a half. So we have all these thermometers, like all new parents in the house. And so she comes over, takes my temperature and it's like 104.2. And she's like looking at it like, I can't be right. So she gets another one, it's like 104.4. You know, she finally calls the team doctor and explains what's going on. And now I'm like shaking, my arms are shaking. And they finally say, you know, get to the hospital. They took me into intensive care and they, they, they kind of strapped my arms down and my legs. They're sticking IVs in my arms and I'm feeling like there's all this pressure on my chest. And I'm thinking, man, I'm about to die. Like I, I was thinking to myself, like, I'm about to, I'm about to check out right now. It was scary, obviously, but it was just weird that I'm, I'm like having this sort of <laughs> this discussion, I guess, with myself about like, this is crazy. You know, like this is absolutely crazy. And they took the, the cast off or the whatever, the band, the stuff I had on my leg and from the knee down all the way to the incision was just black and red. And so an infectious disease doctor was in there and they said it was a staph infection or MRSA infection. I had a pick line in my arm. I had a nurse come by every night and uh, administer vancomycin. I went to a hyperbaric oxygen chamber every day. It was a, a dark time, it was hard. And so the doctor up at Duke obviously was, was worried and concerned and, and, and wanted to, you know, had been talking with the infectious disease doctors and so forth. But he asked me one day, I thought it was a weird request. He said, can you take a picture of the incision? So my wife, you know, takes a picture. And I remember 
him calling, it was like a Thursday, and he said, can you be, can you be here tomorrow? And he took a look at it, looked at it, and said, you have a hole in your, in your ankle. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, the incision opened, is open, and it's a problem. <laughs> you know, we got to fix it. And what they did was they took skin and veins and, and, and attached them to the, you know, to my ankle and attach the vein. I mean, it was a six, seven hour surgery. Basically what, what started off as a, as sort of a one day trip, you know, I, I was, I was, I was there for, you know, almost two months. That was the lowest point for me. That was when I was, you know, I'm done. Uh, it's not worth it. I've almost died. My ankle looks like I have a football attached to it. Like, you know what, it's just, it's not worth it. I love this game so much that I almost died for it. Like, that's, that's stupid, you know, and that's what I'm thinking at that time. I wasn't the eternal optimist like I usually am. But eventually I went home and everything was okay with the staph infection. And you just have consecutive days, consecutive weeks, consecutive months of, of good health. And you start to feel like, you know what, Maybe I do want to come back. You know, maybe I want to continue to play. And eventually, almost two years later, I was back playing. I mean, I've learned a lot. I mean, it's, I've learned a great deal from that whole ordeal. For so long, I was ashamed of the ankle and even kind of hid the whole episode and incident about the staph infection. Because to me, the ankle kind of represented failure and it represented not being able to make do on my contract and, and reward the fans and play at a high level. I mean, it just represented so many negative things. And so even as I was recovering from my surgery, you know, I'd wear my socks high or I'd have a little thing over it and didn't tell anybody, only the team doctors and team officials, but didn't tell any of my teammates what, what, what went on because I was embarrassed and, and, and ashamed of it. But I slowly started to realize and embrace it and realize this is like, this is me. This is a part of who I am. You're proud of your scars, you're proud of your wounds, you're proud of your battles. And, you know, I never thought, but there's a whole generation and era of players and guys who are younger than me. I think they respect me more for, for, for how I dealt with the adversity and how I've overcome that and, you know, how I'm still, I'm still fighting. I'm still swinging, I'm still going. They respect that more than any of the stuff that happened before that. And in a weird way, I think overcoming that was, was greater than anything else I've ever done on the court. Anything in college and NBA, because I know that made me dig deep and dig and find something inside I didn't know I had and just continue to just believe and, and overcome, you know? And so when you do that and when you've gone through that, then you think you can overcome anything. I have goals and things that I want to accomplish and that hasn't changed since I was 14, you know? And so you, you, you constantly want to push yourself and challenge yourself. And through competition, you're discovering more about yourself and more about what you can do. I don't know, I just feel like sports and, you know, is, is a great sort of metaphor for life, you know? And it's constantly having to challenge yourself, constantly dealing with adversity, managing the emotions that come with success but also the emotions that come with, with defeat, that come with failure, uh, that come with adversity. And so, you know, there's so many, so many parallels there. And, and so I'm so grateful that I'm still able to do that, to still 
to still learn those life lessons when most of my contemporaries are, are, have moved on and, and have retired. Grant is a fierce competitor with a smile that just lights up the room. He's taken the values that his parents gave him and the lessons he's learned on the court about teamwork, about respect, being unafraid to be who he is, and never, ever giving up, and applied those lessons to his life. I, for one, cannot wait to see what he does next, but whatever he decides to take on, you can be sure Grant Hill will be a standout. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.